Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Angola President Jao Lorenzo has defied conventional wisdom, opening corruption cases against his predecessor and his predecessor's family. Is this smart politics or the start of genuine reform? And Republic of Congo President Denise Sasu Nguesso's son and daughter are accused of brazen corruption. Why are presidential children often caught with their hands in government coffers? Plus, we discuss Africa's longest serving political parties in power. Why do some parties hold on for decades? And how do we know when their time is up? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. In 2017, Angola's president, Jose Eduardo dos Santos, stepped down in favor of his hand-picked successor after 38 years in power. His chosen heir, Jao Lorenzo, a former defense minister, also known as JLo, swiftly defied conventional wisdom. Instead of protecting Dos Santos, he removed the former president and his family members from key positions in the party and government, and then he initiated a corruption investigation. Now, son of Angola's ex-president, Jose Eduardo Dos Santos, has been formally accused of fraud over the alleged illegal transfer of $500 million from the central bank to the UK. Jose Filomena Dos Santos is also barred from leaving the country. Two years later, the question that we need to ask is, is Lorenzo a true reformer, a canny politician, or can he be both? Joining me to discuss Lorenzo's leadership and other topics is Ann Pitcher, a professor at the University of Michigan and author of several books, including Party Politics and Economic Reform in Africa's Democracies, Liberta Mulamula, a lecturer at the George Washington University and former Tanzanian ambassador to the United States, and Emily Renard, a senior policy advisor at Open Society Foundations. Okay, Anne, you're a longtime Lucifone watcher. How do you explain Lorenzo's rise and some of the moves against the Dos Santos clan, including both Dos Santos' son, Zinu, who ran the Sovereign Wealth Fund, his daughter, Isabel, who headed the National Oil Company? Is this just smart politics, or are we seeing the start of a new political dispensation in Angola? Look, don't forget that the election of 2017, um, where the MPLA won 61% of the vote, so therefore they were able to choose Joao Lorenzo as the president. Those elections took place when oil prices were at record lows, and most of the state's revenue comes from oil. So the country's been in a recession for the last four years. So ordinary Angolans were really hurting and they continue to find that prices are extremely high because the country basically relies on imports for everything. But also it means that there's less revenue to throw around to keep, you know, party notables happy. Smart politics, I think, are what he's engaging in. And he's trying to do two things. He's trying to you know, partially satisfy very disaffected people, particularly around Luanda. And he's trying to preserve the ruling party in in power. And the way to do that, to do that is to signal to people in the country and outside the country that he's, he's tackling corruption. You know, it's not going that far. I mean, as far as I can tell, like neither Zenu nor Isabel 
nor Jose Eduardo dos Santos have have been prosecuted. Isabel still owns a big mansion in London and investments in Portugal and Angola. She's still the chairperson of um, Unitel, the Angolan mobile phone operator. This is about addressing some of the grievances of Angolans. I think you're absolutely right. This is about an urgency given the economic situation. But right now, both of these efforts do one other thing, which is help Lorenzo consolidate power. And ultimately, I guess the question for me is, when will all three of these objectives diverge? At some point, they're not all going to correspond. Yeah, no, I I think that's a, a really good point. And I think that a lot of it hinges on whether he can diversify the economy, and a lot of it hinges on oil prices. And those things are going to diverge in the next couple years if either A, oil prices don't go up, or B, he doesn't attract some big investment. No, that's, so that's a great point. And that's actually where I wanted to bring our conversation to is on the foreign policy. The question I think maybe I'll pose to Emily is, how should the U.S. think about Lorenzo? Is he a reformer? So far, it looks like you know at least someone in this in the right direction, although it's superficial. He's definitely not going to abandon Russia or China, but he wants to bring a closer relationship with the United States and Portugal. I think there's still a lot of uncertainty about what he stands for. Yeah, thanks for that. I just want to highlight, I think, he's also continuing to support and professionalize and maintain a very effective security apparatus. I don't think you could ignore that, right? I mean, it's not like Angola is heading into another ground war anytime soon. So what is what is that about and what is that for? To your point, and and thank you, Judd, for making sure that we all know that he's also known as J-Lo. I think that's essential. Um, And it's interesting to (laughs) talk about Lorenzo as much as we do. But given that we're focusing on political parties, I just want to push the framing a little bit because I think the MPLA is really, by extension, the government, right? And that's what we need to watch here. And I think that's what the U.S. government has to really consider. He's like a CEO of the party. And, And I think all of us, as we're watching these changes, you know, you just have to ask the questions. Is he delivering stuff around genuine change around corruption and transparency, improvements in service provision for the Angolan people, and genuine reform across institutions? And I think there are a lot of unanswered questions there. Sure, he showed he's, he's an old man to some extent, but as others have pointed out, it's clearly uh, not deep or systemic change. And just have to be realistic about the fact that the elites are still profiting off of you know state resources, and that's with without necessarily benefiting the people writ large. And that tension is going to be one that I think will raise really essential questions around governance in the in the long run. And I'm happy to see some openness. I'm happy that the U.S. government did its strategic dialogue um, in, I believe, March. And I'm happy there, like I said, I'm happy there was a human rights component to that. Obviously, there was economic issues and security cooperation, of course, being covered. But, you know, I, I hope the U.S. and others keep human rights, which, again, I, I think of as governance issues, really front and center yeah, to I reform, reform, reform. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that those are, that's the absolutely right prescription and this point about what does the region see in Lorenzo? And and maybe I'll ask Liberata for her views. Angola led the, the Lesotho effort, and, and Lorenzo, I thought, had a, a fairly good run as the head of SADC, the South African um, regional community. You know, in your experience and in your view, is the region, how closely is the region watching what's happening in Angola? And are there particularly lessons do you think they're deriving from it? Yeah, thank you. Let me start uh, by saying that uh, what we are seeing in, in Angola 
it is uh, unprecedented <laughs> because for many, many years during President uh, Dos Santos' reign, Angola was like uh, secluded. They were not taking initiatives. They were not attending any of these summits, regional summit, the SADC summit, the Great Lake summit. So now you see Lorenzo everywhere is taking initiatives, yeah. for example, to convene President Museven, <laughs> convening President Kagame. Yes, that's right. Uh, of course, there have been a history behind it, especially between Angola and Rwanda and the history in DRC. So there was a love-hate relationship on what they did. But then uh, we were all surprised. So I'm saying we are seeing a new Angola. But then you ask whether he's a reformer or like a politician. It is always fashionable yeah. for the new leaders when they come into power. It's as a reformer fighting corruption. But then, as uh, one of the philosophers says, the more you change it, the same it remains. Because none of them is willing to tackle the systemic yeah. issues, the institutional issues. <laughs> so, and we have also a new breed of uh, leadership uh, in the region, in the continent, even here, the populism. But so whether that would bring tangible changes in Angola, it has to be seen. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. We should acknowledge the reforms, and particularly on the foreign policy side. Uh, and we should be mindful that there is a preservation of party. Uh, dynamic that's still going on in Angola. And we probably don't have enough time in this podcast, but you know, if I was in my old job as the senior analyst for the government, I would be asking analysts to identify what do they think are the key signposts that we are about to embark on real change? What are the sacred cows uh, that Lorenzo could go after or the kinds of service delivery and really affecting the population so that we can move from this conversation about is he or isn't he into something more definitive. I want us to move just a little north and do something we've never done on this podcast, which is talk about the other Congo. Um, yes, we, yes. We spent a lot of time talking about DRC, uh, but I'd yeah. like to talk to the Republic of, of Congo, and it's really thanks to Emily for suggesting it. I think Congo Brazzaville or Congo B is a really interesting country, and it deserves a lot of focus. And I would point to three facts that make Congo really interesting. First, the president, Denise Sassou Nguesso, seized power in a coup in 1979, and then stepped down in 1992. He lost an election, stepped down, didn't like being out of power, so launched a rebellion, ended up retaking power. Uh, in 1997 and has been there ever since. So non-consecutively, Sasso has been in power for 35 years, making him the third longest serving president in sub-Saharan Africa after uh, Obiang of Equatorial Guinea and Paul Bia. So he kind of skirts under the radar because he got the reset in 1997. So that's one. Two, when you look at the China-Africa relationship, one of the most interesting places is Congo-Brazzaville. According to Saiz Kari, uh, China was most responsible for its debt distress, but something happened along the way. Congo needed an IMF bailout, and the only way that Congo B was going to get the bailout was that if China relieved some of their debt or restructured it, and so China did. And then third, the, the conversation that I want to focus on 
is this family's corruption? And the NGO Global Witness recently published a series of exposés on Ansasu's daughter, Claudia, and his son, Denise Cristal, also known as Kiki. So we have a Kiki and a J-Lo in this episode, Emily. Um, but they, they have stolen millions <laughs> of... And a Zenu. And a Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we, um, we should all, at the end of this show, come up with our own nicknames. Um, <laughs> uh, but they, both of them have stolen millions of dollars from the country. And so maybe, Emily, can you kind of walk us through what we know according to the Global Witness reports? Yeah, absolutely. Kudos to Global Witness for some amazing and in-depth reporting here. You know, as you note... Denny uh, Sasu Nguesu Sasu has been around for a long time. Actually, at the end of this term, uh, I think he'll be heading into 40 years in power, and I'm sure he's not looking to, to shorten that. Um, I mean, he's known for a lavish lifestyle, repressive tactics, and frankly, corruption. I think that's that's a fair assessment. Um, as you said, his daughter Claudia and his son Kiki, you know, interestingly, they're also members of parliament. So it seems that they're in the family business of government as well as self-enrichment based on a lot of this Global Witness reporting. And according to Global Witness, Kiki stole $50 million from the Congolese treasury um, using sham contracts with a Brazilian company. And this company took uh, the money through that he eventually got his hands on, um, took a complex path through the British Virgin Islands and interesting Delaware to to get to Europe. Um, There's also a Portuguese businessman and fixer uh, who's under investigation in Portugal for facilitating what is essentially money laundering. And we I think that's another episode to think about is this, you know, Portugal Africa dynamics is a fascinating. Yeah. fascinating it's a great idea yeah fascinating uh thing to pull apart on a number of fronts but um that aside you know interestingly the daughter is also under investigation in france for corruption related to 60 million euros worth of family property there's you know i think first and foremost it really is a, a very fascinating case of some serious weaknesses in the international financial system for catching money laundering that's a whole other you know separate conversation but i think think something that people should be looking at, given what um, we see in Congo, which is not, use, they're not using particularly sophisticated methods, right? And they're, they're just taking advantage of some of these weaknesses, as Global Witness has pointed out. Um, and it's a striking example of property in Europe and the U.S. being used to park cash from corrupt government, government officials. You're taking this kind of cash out of a country. You got to you gotta spend it on something. You got to park it somewhere. So and I think real estate is, an, is, a, is something that we um, also need to consider and how that's, that's um, being used as an asset for, for people. Um, And this isn't something that's unique to Congo B or to Sasu's family. And also, you know, accountability is really slow uh, for astounding levels of corruption, obviously, in Congo. And I think it just highlights the potential role for the international community, given the bigger bigger connections to the financial system of how you can have how you talk about elites using um, wealth from their country, ill-begotten gains, essentially. And really, you know, how do we get that money back to, to the Congolese people? So, Suffice to say, I hope DOJ and OFAC and others are taking a look at some of the some of the resources that move through Delaware and potentially in U.S. dollars. I'm I'm sure that there's more to find. I think that's right. We we do have to do maybe it's broader than just Portugal, yeah. but we do have to do an episode on corruption and and particularly the international links. But you know, this is not the only example of presidential offspring with their fingers caught in the cookie jar. So I this is not an exhaustive list, but. Uh, the Mozambican government is uh, looking at former President Gabuza's son's corruption, 
Former president of South Africa, Jacob Zuma's son, is un, in trouble for corruption in South Africa. Former Liberian president Johnson Sirleaf's son, Robert, is in hot water over missing banknotes. There have been long-standing rumors about former president of Senegal, Abdullah Wad's son, Kareem, and current Malian president, Keita's son, also named Kareem, uh, over their corruption. There has been drug trafficking charges against former president of Guinea, Lasana Conte's son. And then, of course, Charles Taylor's son, Chucky, was uh, arrested by U.S. law enforcement. And I can go on and on and on. So, Anne, you have looked at President Dos Santos's daughter, Isabel's rise and fall. You also have a colleague, Marie Brassier, who has looked at dynastic politics, and we hope to have her on in a future episode to do a deep dive here. But I know this is obvious, or it may be obvious, but why is this happening? Why are we seeing so many offspring um, that are are getting uh, wayward with the law? Part of it is, of course, so many offspring uh, seem to be taking advantage of um, their parents, usually their father's position and power, to um, buy luxury properties and fancy cars and accumulate a lot of money. This paper I did on on Isabel uh, Isabel dos Santos, I um, co-authored it with a with a Mozambican scholar named Idolina Sanchez, and we did it for a special issue on dynastic politics that Marie Brossier um, put together for a French journal called Cahier uh, d'Etudes Africaines. And the, and the point of the special issue was to kind of examine the co-production of family power and political power. So what we were kind of really interested in is, like, what are the, what are the institutions or the modes of behavior that enable the reproduction of a family um, over time? And, and what is gained and what's lost when a family or a set of families dominates the political sphere? And I think the big takeaway from the special issue is that there's a lot of variation in how or even if family dynasties get reproduced and what they bring to what they bring to politics. So of course in Gabon and in Togo you see cases where sons like immediately succeed their fathers. Um, in the Angolan case of course you get another kind of variation which uh, was that neither Zenu, the, the, the son, nor Isabel took over from their father, Jose Eduardo de Santos. And it's possible that he wanted um, either one of them to take over, and, and, and it didn't happen. So the pattern was broken. And again, we have to ask, well, why did that happen? And I think it goes back to what we mentioned earlier, which is the MPLA is a very strong party. Of course, it was one of the parties, that, um, one of the movements that um, fought against Portuguese colonialism. And then they, uh, the MPLA, Movement for the Liberation of Angola, um, became the ruling party after independence and has ruled the country ever since. One of the little twists we have in our in our article is we also think that it that the coverage of of Isabel particularly by the international press, has been kind of misogynistic. And what we what we mean by that is very kind of anti-female, even more than these sons who've been identified with corruption. That that is absolutely fascinating. I encourage everyone to to read some of uh, the work that you and your colleagues have have done. And as I said, I hope that we'll 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 get to that uh, in a, in another podcast and really kind of dig deep. So I've set myself up for two 
episodes. Okay. Um, <laughs> but you also, well, I, Anne, well, I also wanted, yeah, I go also ahead. wanted to say that, um, Isabel is, is mixed race. Her, her mother is, is, is Russian. Um, and so that seems to be another reason why probably the party was not comfortable, um, choosing her as, uh, as the next leader. Let's dig into this conversation about strong ruling parties. There's a host of parties, particularly in Southern Africa, that have been in power for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years or 60 years. And and just to sort of run down the list, I mean, essentially, they've been in power since the transition, the independence uh, era or the transition to multiracial democracy. And those are the MPLA in Angola, which we've been speaking about, the BDP in Botswana for Limo in Mozambique, SWAPO in Namibia, the ANC in South Africa, CCM in Tanzania, ZANU-PF in Zimbabwe. And if we kind of do some fuzzy math, we can add Paul Bia's party in Cameroon, which has links to the original independence party, and then Ali Bembango's uh, PDG in Gabon. And so Liberata... You know, how is it possible these parties continue to remain in power uninterrupted for decades? I mean, it would be really interesting to hear your thoughts on how they derive their legitimacy. What is it about the political systems or the opposition that uh, allows parties to remain in power for a very long time? Yeah, let me say uh, most of these parties, as you rightly said, the they are the only parties maybe that propel the countries where they are from some from time of independence, time time of liberation struggles. So it's very difficult to uh, to get the, to get rid of them because of the roots that they are quite quite deep. Vanguard parties. Vanguard parties, mass parties. I mean, they are very populist kind of parties. They they uh, they rely on mass mobilization. And uh, that's why, that's one, they have a strong base at the grassroots. And that's where people are. These are people's party, so it's called. But then with the changing dynamics, with the new political dispensations, people have even started questioning the relevance of these parties. Uh, let me give example. For example, we have in Tanzania, CCM, Chama Chama Pinduzi. Chama Chama Pinduzi, the Mapinduzi, stands for revolution. <laughs> so some are questioning, is it still are we in the revolution? It had to be revolution after 60 years. <laughs> after 60 years, is it, are we in the revolution? Are we in the reform? In... But at the same time, you have these parties meeting to be able to restore what had kept them in power. They have been meeting in South Africa, all those so-called liberation parties, but these are political parties. And they are playing, of course, they have to play their political games. So what we are seeing, and in fact, most of these parties, they come live or alive during the election time. Yes, <laughs> yes. because that's when yeah. <laughs> you see them. I mean, of course, if there have been revolts, they have been, it's during the election. <laughs> so that's why I'm saying in, we are seeing some people questioning about them, but we are also seeing parties, these so-called ruling parties, uh, being split. Yeah. And uh, what I don't like, let me say it through this uh, one there, is labeling these parties ruling parties. So that one has made them like, yes, we are ruling parties. 
Yes, I mean, ruling and opposition. Mm. Call them by their names. Okay. <laughs> yes, as you know, there you call them Democrats. Parties, Republican parties. Yeah, we don't say the ruling Republican party. The ruling Republican parties. That's a really good point. Yes, I think this is what has also made them sustain themselves because they believe they are the ruling parties. So this is what I thought I should flag here. All right, I'm going to try to hold to that. I'm going to (laughs) try. Or we just own the fact that if you're calling something a ruling party, then you're essentially saying like, it's not really a part of a fair democracy, right? I mean, that there's, you can, if you're saying that, that that's clearly code for something. Well, I think we're well, just we're well, using a shorthand. Go ahead, Anne. I think if the Republican Party had run the country for 30 years, I think we would be calling it the ruling party. Well, that is also a fair point. I think that's well taken. You know, but they're also, to add on to Liberata's point, is they're also very agile at um, adjusting to international and domestic uh, demands on them. And I, I'm not saying that as a negative or positive. I'm just as stating a fact. And the the way that I got acquainted with Anne's work was through your book, P- uh, Party Politics and Economic Reform. And I thought um, in the case studies that you had, you you showed very effectively how different parties in Southern Africa responded to the pressures in the late 80s, early 90s around structural adjustment reform and were able to, in at least some of those cases, sustain their rule, even when there was a lot of pressure to change their economic systems. Um, is there is there points from the, your book that maybe help our conversation, Anne? Well, one of the main claims I I made in the book is during the early 1990s and early 2000s, you know, most countries in Africa adopted market-enhancing institutions, and they opened up to investors. They they um, loosened barriers to trade, but th- this was going on at the same time that countries were also shifting to multi-party politics and having um, elections. So there was a lot of political and economic uncertainty and volatility. And what I, but what I tried to show in the book was that if the party in power or the ruling party had a fairly stable base of support, either because they survived the shift to electoral politics with their base intact, like for Limo in Mozambique, or if they had a coherent base to start with, like the African National Congress in South Africa, then what I argued is they were in a good position to kind of control the process of economic reform in their favor um, and to enact regulations that that favored the, the politically powerful. If you look at Mozambique now, it's a very different economy from, from what it was um, just after independence and during the 1980s when it was more state, more of a state-driven economy. And now it's more you know, it's more of a private sector-driven economy. There's all kinds of investors in aluminum, um, new natural gas projects, coal mining, but there's still a substantial role for the state. And my argument in the book was that's because for Limo had been, had been and continues to be a pretty coherent, disciplined party. And what they, what they've done with the reform process is, is, um, in a way, kind of directed in their favor. So now you have um, many um, formerly politically powerful people and, and currently politically powerful people, like 
former presidents and current presidents and ministers and governors who have all these business interests. And they they took advantage of the rules. I mean, the rules are um, focused on creating a market economy, but they also kind of tweaked those rules so that they could also um, have interest in business. And this, you know, this is like some of the rule bending we're getting in the United States. So it's not it's not just an Africa thing. In South Africa, you, you have kind of a similar pattern with ANC loyalists who've taken advantage of their positions in the state, particularly under Zuma, pres- former President Zuma, to, to get into business. I think Angola is going to follow the same pattern, that here you've got this really strong party that's been in power um, since independence in 1975, and now they're uh, undertaking these reforms, and 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 we're um, we're very hopeful about the reforms. We see it as a good sign, but um, we we're also seeing that they're they're shaping the re- the economic reforms so that people in the party also benefit. Right, and the, I think the the interesting thing here is that all of the parties that we're talking about now that Robert Mugabe has gone have seen internal leadership succession. Uh, CCM has had multiple presidents. I think we could actually make a stretch argument about even Robert Mugabe's departure being about holding uh, ZANU and keeping ZANU in power. What I think is challenging for us as analysts and observers is because these are closed systems, the party themselves, not necessarily the country in all cases, it's very difficult to see when that revolt is sort of starting to get underway and how do we see those signposts. And I don't know if you have thoughts on how, how do we tell, like how do we from the outside know if there's this sort of bubbling up of a frustration within the party that could lead to removal of leaders who are sort of moving us in the wrong direction? Uh, I mean, as I mentioned, because I mean, these leaders, I mean, the the parties become active during election. That's when you will see yeah. what is bubbling. The signpost comes at the time of the elections. And um it, it's not easy. It's not easy, first of all, to remove the, the heads of the parties. For example, in the Tanzania system, the chairman of the party is the president yeah. of the United Republic. <laughs> so with that yeah. executive power, holding all the economic power, holding all the state organs, controlling all the branches of, uh, of, the, of the government, it's, it's not easy. But then what is different? The, the Zambia example, <laughs> you had UNIP <laughs> that ruled for years until when Kaunda <laughs> was removed and Chiruba came in from the, the trade union background. Then it has never been the same. We cannot generalize. Yeah. But then where you have the chair of the parties, the president of the country, uh, it's, 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 it's not easy. It's a, it's a to, way to higher change. bar to yes, see change. Very, yeah, to see change. And so, so if we're not going to see it like within the ruling party we may see it on the street. But, but in ANC, yeah. ANC example, it's a ruling party, but then they, at the same time, they can recall back the president. They can call back the president, yes, right. Yes, they recall back him back. They called the Zuma. It was the party itself. So it has, uh, yeah. it's uh, this double kind of uh, age sensing of this ruling party, but having that strong power to bring change.
let me just send the last couple questions to Emily is how do you think, how should we think about this new generation of voters um, and whether or not they, they do have that same ties to the vanguard parties that uh, Liberata mentioned? I think it's really hard because our goal should be to level the playing field, not necessarily to root for the removal of certain parties by electoral defeat. But that's super difficult, right? Like when we try to level the playing field, the ruling parties, excuse me, the parties in power can perceive us as trying to to, to work to incumbents to work towards their ouster. But what we're really trying to do is just to make sure that people's choices can be heard and then reflected. And so how do we how do we balance that? I kind of think about this in three ways. I mean, one, you have to know your history and your your current context and the history that shaped it. And obviously, the liberation struggles in some regions loom really large politically. Um, but like vo- voters anywhere, Africans, African citizens want to know that there's something in that, something in their government for them, right? That it's not just about celebrating old elites or profiting, you know, continuing to serve the interests of elites or that there's actually something in it for them. I mean, that's, that's I think, a really core tenet of, of, of democracy. And it's not certainly not unique to Africa. Um, and then, frankly, you know, ruling party or not, is your is is a party really a place for genuine political debate and political competition over ideas and you know and and ideas for governance again novel, um, but you know versus a means to access power, personal wealth or resources to placate whatever your constituencies may look like, and if your party is just a means to to state capture, uh, you're probably not looking at a political party. Um, so if that's the you know if you're looking at this kind of you know morass of issues, if you will, of what is a party and what isn't and how long, you know, what keeps them, uh, you know, ruling parties in power, you know, from 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 the from where I sit, I think parties can and should be used to obviously hold leaders accountable, you know, hold leaders accountable to voters, not just other elites um, and, you know, protection for their brand, if you will. Um, and, you know, it's essential to creating political competition that isn't just based off of, of, of force or other or other types of competition. Um, I think in the U.S. case, particularly working through civil society, um, you know, to bolster parties at a local level, create more um, competition on the basis of ideas in local races, to work with women and youth and marginalized populations on their roles in parties, and work with press and civil society to also promote that public debate um, on political and economic roadmaps, because that's you know that's what people care about, and 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 you connect with local communities and, and party politics in a healthy way. Afrobarometer data talks about this. Like Africans want better political parties; they want more political parties. There's demand for that, and I think that that tells us that there should be investment in that space from African actors, from you know African donors, international donors, and and other policymakers. We've run out of time for today's episode, but I think those are wise words to end the show with. Uh, thanks to everyone for, for joining us. And we've got a, a lot of podcasts that we're going to have to be doing uh, that we've signed up for. So thank you. Thank you so okay. much. Great to talk to you. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.